Welcome, everybody. Great to see you here. And um, welcome to everybody watching on Facebook. And uh, let it snow, huh? Woo! <laughs> well, we're in the middle of a series called Building Your Future. Building Your Future. And we're using as our text Jesus' words from his famous Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 25. So I open up with this every week. And I think we're getting it. Jesus said this, these words I speak to you are coming up on the screen. (laughs) There we are. They're not incidental additions to your life, homeowner improvements to your standard of living. Next slide. (laughs) They are foundational words. And here we go, words to build a life on. If you work these words into your life, You're like a smart carpenter who built his house on solid rock. And so we're saying the words of Jesus are the foundation upon which we build our life. And so we started out by saying, listen, this applies when it comes to your future. And vision is that picture in the future that produces passion in you. So we want to build our life on a God-honoring vision. And then in week two, we talked about we need the spiritual disciplines in our life to be spiritually strong to grow. And then last week we talked about serving. How many know there are those good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do? And as we serve others in his name, we're entering into those good works that he's prepared for us. Well, those are all important things, starting with vision, the spiritual disciplines in our life so we're spiritually strong, serving, all building blocks that help build your future into being, becoming a strong follower of Jesus. And what I want to talk to you today about is this. You can do everything else in your life right in terms of your your God-honoring vision, the spiritual disciplines, your obedience to the Lord, your serving others. You're doing everything right and still miss the most important part of the Christian life. And that's what I want to talk to you today about is how to build your love for Christ, how to build your love for Christ you know what it's like, don't you, do, to have a favorite song? How many of you have a favorite song? And you listen to that song, and the, the first time you hear it, it's pretty good. Three or four times into it, you're like, I love this song. And you listen to it over and over and over and over and over and over, and pretty soon, you've listened to that song so much that the next time you hear it, it almost nauseates you. It's like, oh, I used to love that song. But now it has become common. It's boring now. It's dull. Why? Because you played it so much. And it just got routine. Or how about those of you that are married? You remember what it was like when, when you were dating? You remember that? Can you remember that far back, some of you? Or some of you are in the middle of it right now. And when you're dating, you know, and you think about that person, you're in love. And you're, you know, you think about them and you have a hard time sleeping. And every time your mind goes to them, you're just thinking, wow, they just make the world such a better place. And guys, you remember what it was like? The flowers, the poetry, the coffee, the whatever it was that you did that you enjoyed. And you just anticipated that. You look forward to that. All those little things you did because you were in love. And then what happens 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years down the road if we're not careful? If we don't continue doing those little things, 
then we just take one another for granted. It's just routine. And even though we don't say it, they walk into the room and now it's, oh, it's you again. <laughs> I heard a guy say that when, when he and his wife first met, it was, it was so ideal. And then after a few years, it turned into an ordeal. <laughs> and they were looking for a new deal, but God said no deal. <laughs> but that's the nature of life. That's the gravitational pull of life. We just get into these habits and these routines, and there's nothing in and of themselves that's wrong with that. But life can become, here's a good word, perfunctory. Obligatory, routine, common. And we forget the passion we once had, the love that we once had, how we used to smile every time we'd think of that person. And how we, our love was, it was not just in the routine, but it was, it was emotional to us. We were passionate. We were excited. We were enthusiastic. We were grateful. Now, here's something that you need to know in case you don't, that God cares about the condition of our heart. Our doctrine's important, our lifestyle's important, our character's important, and our attitude towards the Lord is important, like real important. And I want to show you today a model church. This model church was the church from the outside. You'd look at the, these, this group of people and you'd say, you know what? They are doing everything right. They're working hard. They've endured hardships. They don't tolerate sin. They're serving. They're obedient. They've got the spiritual disciplines in place. Man, this is an awesome church. And although the Lord acknowledges all the awesomeness of this church, it's, by the way, it's the church at Ephesus, he still calls them out for something that they're lacking. And what we're going to do is look at the church at Ephesus here in Revelation chapter 2. And just to kind of set up Revelation, you know that Revelation was given to the Apostle John. This is the, one of the 12 apostles who was closest to the Lord Jesus, the apostle whom Jesus loved. And last year we went through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the letters that John wrote. This is that John who is exiled on an island called Patmos, and he has this vision that happens to him. It's called Revelation. And all of a sudden, he sees what he's going through at the moment, but he sees the future. He sees how things are going to end up. It's, of course, a prophetic book from chapters 4 all the way to 22 about what's going to happen someday. But chapters 2 and 3 in particular deal with the church age. They deal with churches. And he writes letters as the Spirit of God instructs him to these seven churches, and the very first church, again, is the model church. It is the church at Ephesus. So listen to what he says here in Revelation chapter 2. This is a message to the church. To the angel, that word angel just means messenger, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. And we know the golden lampstands are the churches. And the, the angels are the messengers. And here's, he begins to commend the church, this, this group of believers. And he says this, I know your deeds. And what's implied here is they're good. 
guys are doing the right things. I know your hard work. Do we have any hardworking people here? The Lord sees that. He sees our deeds. He sees our hard work and your perseverance. You didn't give up when it got tough. And I know that you can't tolerate wicked people. Sin bothers you and you, do, you hate it. And that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not. So their doctrine's in order. Their serving is in order. Their deeds are in order. Their character is there. And you found these, these apostles faults. And you've persevered. And you've endured hardships for my name. These are not immature believers. This is a church that's been through some things. They've been through persecution. They've been through suffering. They've been through a lot, and they've stayed faithful to God. They've continued to do the right things. And you've not grown weary. Don't grow weary in doing well. For in due season, you'll reap a harvest, right? We remember reading that. And so the Lord builds up this model church, this church at Ephesus. You guys are awesome. Look at the deeds. Look at your works. Look at your perseverance. Look at your character. Look at your doctrine. All this is in order. And yet in verse 4, he says this. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. You've forsaken the love you had at first. It's grown cold. You've left it. You've done the right things, the right way, but you forgot the heart in it. You forgot love. And that, that is the word agape. I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. I think the Christian life essentially is very simple, very simple to understand. In one sentence, here's how you define the Christian life. It is a life of loving Jesus Christ. I know it sounds pretty basic, and it is, but just that simple statement can get lost to us. The Christian life is best defined as an ongoing relationship of love between a believer and his Lord, her Lord. And what we don't need to talk about is Christ's love for us. We know that that's fixed. He demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We, we know that he's immutable. He never changes. The issue is not God's love for us. The issue is our love for Christ. You know, sometimes when we sing our songs, and by the way, one of the ways you can tell about a person's passion for God is by how they sing. Songs ex express emotion. And if our singing is real dull and boring, it's probably a little dull and boring in here. When our singing is passionate, heartfelt, it's probably because something's going on in here. Some Christian songs, I don't really enjoy them because the focus is on us too much. It's on me. I think sometimes we get the idea that the Christian life is all about how much God loves me and how God wants to fulfill my dreams and my desires and help with my ambitions and my goals and my objectives 
And what he wants to do is make something wonderful out of me and lift me up and elevate me up and, and fulfill all the hopes of my heart. If we're not careful, we really can make it about us. Our prayer life can be about us. We almost see God like a cosmic Santa Claus. We write down our wish list. God, I want this. This is, this is my wish list. Do this for me. But in reality, the Christian life is about Him. It's about loving Him singularly. It's about loving Him totally. It's about loving Him sacrificially. It's about loving Him obediently. It's about loving Him worshipfully. It's about loving Him in terms of our service. It's about loving Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's that you now commit your life to loving Him. Being a Christian is about loving Christ so much that you want to know Him. So much that you want to exalt Him. So much that you want to please Him. So much that you want to serve Him. You want to be with Him. And you want to tell others about Him. It's about this overwhelming, consuming affection for Christ. This is at the core of what it means to be a Christian. And so the real question to ask people when you talk about their spiritual growth or their spiritual condition, but where are they in, in terms of their life with Christ is, here's the question, is how much do you love Jesus Christ? How much do you love Christ? Are you growing in your love for Christ? Do you love him more now than you did a decade ago, a year ago? Do you desire to know him more? And are you hungry for his word? Are you hungry for his righteousness, sir? Do you want to know him? Or do we just get caught up in the trappings of all that goes into the Christian religion? The model church, Ephesus, was doing everything right. But their hearts were not engaged anymore. It was routine. Listen to the language of the New Testament. Here are the words of Jesus, Matthew chapter 10 and verse 37. And when we read this, it's really, it's almost offensive. He said this, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Luke says it this way, if you love your own life more than me, you're not worthy of me. In comparison to how much we love God, we are to hate even our own life. What does that mean? It means that our desire to love God, to please God, to serve God, should stand out above those that we naturally love, our families and our friends. It's about loving Christ to the point where we're willing to take up our cross, lose your life for his sake, that you might find it. When we're willing to hate those things that we desire in this earth, that we want for us, 
when God makes it clear to us that that's not what He has for us. Compared to our dreams and ambitions and hopes and desires, they, they pale in comparison to how much we are to love Christ. The Christian life is about a heart attitude much more than it is about theology or conduct. And the Scripture says theology is important. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. Those are all important things. But walking with God is more about the heart. It's always about the heart. Man looks at the outward appearance, the outward performance, but God looks at the heart. First Corinthians 16, 2, 22, rather, looks a little bit at the negative side. Here's what, he, here's what Paul said. If any man love not Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. What's he saying? He's saying basically there's two kinds of people in the world. There's the cursed, the damned, and there's those that love Jesus. And that's how he sees the world. The question we must all answer is a heart question. And Jesus clearly teaches this in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 22, where he says, the most important commandment in all the Bible is to what? Love the Lord with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. That's it. That is what? The most important thing in the Bible. Not whether or not you're doctrinally correct on every jot and tittle, whether you're a Calvinist or an Armenian or what you believe about eschatology. So where's your heart? It was Jesus who said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. It was Jesus who said, if you love me, You'll keep my word. You'll put this into practice. It was Jesus who said, if you love me, you'll feed my sheep. It's the issue. It's the issue of the heart. It's about loving Christ. You know, as, as a pastor, this matters a lot to me. That's why our whole mission statement is turning the people of Maine, and it has been right from the beginning, into what? Turning the people of Maine into wholehearted followers of Jesus Christ. Not half-hearted, wholehearted. It matters to me as a pastor because as you go, so goes our church. So goes this church and all the people this church influences. And if our walk with Christ is just going through the motions and our heart's not in it, it's troublesome. You may say, well, I belong to Jesus. I gave my heart to the Lord. Don't we all love Christ? I would say yes. If you're a follower of Jesus, you love him, but to what degree? We all love Christ to some degree. But that level of love can change, and that's what happened in the church at Ephesus. When the gospel was first preached to them, they, the whole city was in an uproar. They would bring their books all their godless books, and they had a big bonfire and burned them all. The whole community of faith was on fire. Businesses were shutting down and losing income because the gospel was going out and the church was spreading the gospel and it, was, it started in just this beautiful move of the Spirit of God. Timothy became their pastor. 
But over time, they just started going through the motions, just like you can in a, any relationship. You just go through the motions. Maybe you've wondered, well, does that mean you have to have like puppy love when you first fall in love? And you, yeah. <laughs> no. No, but think about those of you that are married or have had a relationship with somebody you love. Who, who in this world do you love the most? I'm not talking about the Lord Jesus now. I mean, who outside of the Lord Jesus do you love the most? Who do you enjoy the most? Who, who's the closest to you? Who you're the most intimate in your conversation with? Who do you long to be with the most in this world? What makes that such a wonderful relationship to you? What makes that so special? Well, there's a couple things. One is you spend time with that person. Two, you trust that person. You share communication, intimacy, life with that person. And because of that, you do things to maintain that relationship. Little things. Little things that show love and appreciation. I know when Lisa and I first got married, it was, we had a lot of ups and down, peaks and valleys. We always loved each other, and I think we'd say we'd love each other, but it was some fireworks those early years. I may have been hit by some objects. And here's the truth. I deserved it. I honestly did. I remember, I don't know, a decade into our marriage, being too consumed with other, now we still, I would still have said we had a good marriage, but it's not good like it is now. We're going on year 30 this year. Yeah, amen. <laughs> and I would say, even though we enjoyed each other, we loved each other, it's not near as good as it is now. And what changed? Well, honestly, a lot of it was me being less selfish just taking more time, investing more time into our relationship. More time in the little things that she appreciated. Communication, listening, being all there when you're there. You know, those little things that I struggled with for about 20 years. But you grow in love. And it's not all these emotions. Oh, we still have emotions. Still have passion. But there's a depth to it. It's special. Think about those people that you are the closest to in this world. Your love is special. It's, it's important to you. We could probably all say, you know, I could do some things to make it even better. And that's true. But why does love grow, grow cold? Why does our love in a marriage grow cold or a friendship grow cold? It's because we stop investing in it. We, we get clouded with other things. And this is what's happened to many of us in our relationship with God, we're still checking the box in many ways. Still giving, still going to church, still serve sometimes, still pray a little bit, you know, read the Bible once in a while. But it's routine now. The heart's not engaged anymore. And here's what clouds it out. And John talks about this, not in Revelation, but in his epistle. First John, he says this. 1 John 2, 15 and 17, he says, listen, don't love the world or anything in the world. Now, he's not talking about the little birds. He's not talking about the ocean or the sunset or pine trees or 
talking about the system of the world. And you're going to see it here in a minute. He said, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, and now he qualifies it, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. What's he saying? If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father's not in them. It's this, the world speaks to the system. It's really an evil system that is against God, built on pride and lust. It's the world that hated Jesus, the world of wickedness, the world of selfishness, the world of wretchedness, the world of corruption, the system of evil. And all you have to do is open your eyes and you'll see it. You'll see it out there and sometimes you'll recognize it in here. Lust, pride, greed, selfishness. And the more we feed that in us, the more we love the world, the less of the, the love that we have for God is in us. It just it begins to wane. It grows cold. That's why John said you can't, you can't love the world and the things of the world and have that your greatest desire. That's your vision. That's your goal. And let your love for Christ run cold, even though you're still checking the religious boxes. There is a love that God hates and that is the love of the world. The Bible's clear that God is a God of perfect love, but because God loves perfectly, He also hates perfectly. Romans tells us, love must be sincere. Hate that which is evil and cling to that which is good. Now, don't hate people. We don't hate people, right? We hate the evil that people do. We hate the, the wicked, sinful state of humanity, but we don't hate individual people. But the two are inseparable. We're supposed to hate this world that hates Christ, not meaning people, meaning the system, meaning wickedness. Think about this. If you say that you love something, what you're implying is if you really love something, you hate something on the other side of that. Why? For example, how many of you love your children? What if something came to hurt your children or destroy your, your children? Wouldn't you hate that thing that's threatening your children? Perfect love hates. And the Bible says that if we're going to love God, then we have to hate that system that's built on lust and pride and greed Jesus said this, the world that Jesus spoke of said this. He, he said, the world hates you because it first hated me. Have you ever thought about that? If we truly are living for Christ and we love Christ and we love God's righteousness and we're seeking that first, people will automatically, people will hate you. That doesn't mean you hate them back, right? We love our enemies. But if our light is bright, if we are in love with Christ, that will catch the attention of people that don't love Christ. And the Bible says people that have darkness in them, they hate the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. I 
Let me, let me move on to something a little happier. You're looking a little serious right now. <laughs> let me talk about how, how can I get it back? You say, okay, I remember what it was like when I accepted Christ, or I remember the joy, and I remember that stuff. But I, honestly, I, probably I am in the routine of things a little bit, and maybe my love has grown a little cold towards the Lord. It's common, it's routine. What can I do to spice it up again? What can I do to really enjoy God again? And in the same passage of Scripture where the model church was doing all these things right, but their love had gone cold, the Lord tells them, here's how to get it back. And so I just want to give you a very simple three little things in the Scripture. It just shows you this is how to get it back. And by the way, if you have a marriage that's gone cold, I mean, you can get it back. It's like riding a bike. It comes back. What you just got to start doing is building trust again, doing those little things again. You can get it back with the Lord. You can, you can be on fire for God again. You can be passionate about Him again. You can love Him and show it by your obedience. How does that happen? Look at it here. Revelation 2, 5 to 7, the same passage of Scripture. He says this. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. What does that mean? I'm going to close the church. How many times have we seen that? The lampstand gets removed. But this you have in your favor here, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And what was the deeds of the Nicolaitans? It was sexual sin. And God said, I hate that, and you hate that too, so you got that in your favor. Then he goes on to say, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, you work through this, you overcome, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And in all these letters to the seven churches, there's a similar pattern. Here's the Lord will instruct them, this needs to be adjusted, this needs to change, and if you'll do it, if you'll overcome then there's a great blessing in store because God is a blesser. We've talked about that recently. So what do you do to love Christ like you used to? Three things. You ready? The first thing is this, how to renew my love for Christ. First thing he said to do right here in verse five is to remember. Remember. Go back and remember. Remember. You know, when I go back in my mind, I remember being a child. And I remember when my mother led me to the Lord. I was in my bedroom, and you've heard my claim to fame as I grew up in Joshua Chamberlain's house in Brewer. It's Chamberlain House, the corner of Chamberlain and Washington Street. There's a little plaque on it. It's for sale, by the way. I drove by the other day. And uh, that's the house that Joshua Chamberlain grew in. And I was in the same room that he was in. That is the room I accepted Christ in. And I remember I was in my bed one night, and my mother came, and she would tuck me in and she knelt down on my bedside as I was just a little kid, and she said, Kirk, you believe in the Lord. I know you do. I said, of course I do. She said, you need to accept him as your Savior and ask him to forgive your sins. And I remember as a boy doing that, and something changed. I just started to have uh, an understanding of who God was. I started to read the Bible every single day, even when I was in third grade. I started to talk to God. I, I remember some of the conversations I had with God as a little boy. And it was like I never heard him here, but just in my heart, I get began to 
have an ear tuned to the Lord. And I remember so many times growing up in my teen years, through my stupidity, through my sinful ways, God was just there. I remember the times that he's protected me. The time I was going down Interstate 95 at 4.30 in the morning and I hit black ice and I was going off the road and I cried out, Jesus! <laughs> I remember the times that we didn't have enough money, especially early on in ministry, even to heat our house. I remember the time a guy showed up to our house and gave us a check, and it was just enough to buy the fuel that we needed. I remember what it was like to have, when God was just teaching us to walk onto our a campus when I went to Bible school, and we didn't know how we were financially we were going to make it, because I was making like minimum wage working at a hotel with a little girl, and we had sold everything to go to Bible school, and we're just talking about, you know, maybe if we go in there, we, they can help find you a job, Lisa. And we were greeted at the door the first time we ever walked on the campus. And someone looked at my wife and said, do you need a job? I remember the times that we didn't have enough money to buy a house. And I got a phone call and someone said, God told me to give you $50,000 so you can buy a house. I remember the times. God spoke to us about starting a church and God had told me to quit my job and to spend it in prayer, and I spent my time in praying and setting it up, and we still paid all of our bills and our financial commitments and our ties, even though we didn't have money. I was putting it on the card. It's the only way I knew I could pay the bills. When we got ready to move from Florida to Maine, they were having a special service at this church, and we just decided, let's go to church tonight, and we did, and right there on the spot, the Holy Spirit spoke to the pastor. It was a large church and said, we're supposed to take an offering and give it to Kirk and Lisa. We were able to pay all that debt off that we incurred while God told me to pray. We had enough money to rent a U-Haul, to move back to Maine, to start the church, to put a down payment on the house, and then we were even again. I remember all these things that God has done for us over the years. I remember the time that I was playing football and I tore my ACL. And I was like, oh no, my knee swelled up this big. And I went and I was going to have to go see an orthopedic surgeon. I was taking a group to a conference. And I had a cast on my leg and I sat in the plane. I was going to come, have to come back and get surgery and I'm like this. And I just started worshiping God on the plane. And all of a sudden, I felt this heat about the size of a quarter come out of the, my knee right there. And I knew God was healing me. Nobody, I didn't pray. Nobody touched me. I was just worshiping God quietly on an airplane. I was able to take that cast off. God reattached that ACL. It's now my strong knee. You know, you look back, how God has blessed you, how he's provided for you, how he's cared for you, how he's protected you, how he's loved you, how he's taught you. You begin to remember these things. It's part of why I keep journals. I remember all the, I write down when God's blessing or when something I don't understand, I'll write it down and then I go back years later. I just spent three or four days, um, probably two or three days, I got to correct that, going back, looking at parts of my journal from 2014 to 2017 and just reviewing 
in remembering, stirring up how faithful God has been. He's been good to you too. Remember it. The times that he's spoken through a dream. The time he would send someone just in the nick of time with a word of encouragement to keep me from quitting. The time when we had started out in ministry and we had no Christmas presents and didn't know what I was going to do and this gentleman walked in the church and gave us $500 and said, I just thought you should have a good Christmas. And see God do the same thing for my children. I, we just heard from our daughter today. Their washing machine went and they're, you know, they're making very little money serving God in a little church in western Maine. And someone from this church sent them a check. You just felt inspired by God to do it. Sent them a check for $500. The same day they get the bill for a new washing machine, it was $501 because their washing machine died. You see the faithfulness of God. I see how God has comforted people in their sorrow and comforted us in trials. And we just begin to see what an awesome God. What an awesome God. You begin to recall those things that he's done. You meet the people that were lost and hopeless, broken and hurting. God saved them, gave them a brand new life. You begin to look at these things and just joy fills your heart. He said, remember, remember. And then he said to repent. And here's something we need to understand about repentance. It is a gift. It's a gift from God. The goodness of God leads us to repent. What does it mean to repent? It means to change. It means you're not incorrigible. You are capable of changing. You are capable of repenting because God will give you that gift to change. Repent. Repent. And when our love grows cold, not only do we need to remember our faithful God and all that he has done for us and how wonderful he is, but we need to repent. We need to change. We need to be willing to say, God, I was going my direction. I was going my way. My way is leading to a cold heart. Maybe I'm still doing a few things right, but my heart has grown cold. God, I want to repent. I want to turn and turn to you. To, to repent is to do a 180. I'm walking this way. I'm living life the way I think I should be but I can see I'm walking away from you. I'm going to repent. I'm going to do a 180, and now I'm going to walk towards you. Repent. It's a wonderful gift that God gives us. I repent all the time. I thank God for the gift of repentance. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just. He'll forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I got a rapid repenter. God, I'm sorry. I want to live for you. I don't want to serve you. Forgive me. I'm walking towards you, God. I hope you've learned to repent. You know what keeps us from repentance? It's pride. It's ego. <laughs> Just die to that thing. The love of the world is the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. The Bible says God keeps the proud at arm's length, but the humble he draws close. He gives grace to be humble. Repent. Amen? Amen? It's a wonderful blessing to repent. You don't have to sit on that high horse anymore. You just say, okay, God, I blew it. It's just a relief. 
breathe the, the fresh air of his grace. How do you restore your love for Christ? Remember what he's done. Remember his grace. Remember his goodness. Repent. And then he says this, and do those things you did at first. Just simply repeat what you used to do. If you want your marriage to be stronger, that relationship stronger, just start doing what you used to do when you were in love. Write little love notes. Give a back rub. Do the dishes. Make the bed. Put on deodorant, you know. <laughs> just do the little things. <laughs> yes, that would be a good idea. <laughs> do the things you did at first. Start reading the Bible again. Start thanking God again. Start being intentional about talking to God, about thanking Him. I don't know where to start. Just begin to count your blessings. That's, that's an old, old thing we've done, but I tell you what, it works. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. Count your blessings. See what God has done. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. Count your many blessings. See what God has done. You start counting all the blessings, you'll just be, that praise will just rise up in your heart. God has been good to you. Just redo, redo what you used to do. And you'll find your heart strangely warmed. Amen. It's a simple path. Remember, repent, redo. And so let me just say this as we close up, that the Christian life, it really is a simple thing to understand. It's a life of loving Jesus, and it's best defined as an ongoing relationship, not a religion, but a relationship of love between you and Christ. And how do I renew that love for Christ? I remember how it was, how it is for people that have been transformed by His grace. I repent falling away and growing cold is a sin. I repent from that sin. And I redo. I just begin to repeat the things I did at first when I was swept up in the joy of my salvation. Let me, let me pray for you. Can I pray for you? Heavenly Father, you are so good to us. Lord, I'm so thankful for every single blessing that you've given in our lives. Lord, help us to love you with all of our heart and all of our mind and all of our soul and all of our strength because you're worthy of it. We love you. Just in your own words, your own way, in your own heart, just begin to thank God for what he's done for you. And tell him how much you love him. Lord, we just thank you. We thank you for our, our families, for our jobs, for providing all of our needs, for our friends, for our health, for our church family, for our nation, for our freedom, for all the blessings. So many, Lord. We remember your goodness. And we thank you.
And Lord, we repent for the sin of growing cold. I thank you, Lord, that your mercies are new every morning and great is your faithfulness. And Lord, I pray at this season in our church family, during these 21 days of prayer, that each one of our passion for you would be renewed, our hearts would come alive, our affection for you would be greater than it's been before, Lord. And we ask you, Lord, for your continued presence in our life. So we thank you and worship you for all you've done and who, for who you are. And I pray these things in the name of Jesus, the strong Son of God, the one that we love and will be forever grateful to for all you've done for us. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you.